Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Air Condition Fellowship Hall. It's good to see all of you here today. Uh, I know you, uh, for, for those of you who are regularly with us, last week we made the change. Nice of you to do that for me and have it all set up when we got back from vacation. Uh, I'm just kidding. Um, but uh, I did want to, I don't know if you had a chance to do this last week, I did want to start today though noticing the change of venue to uh, take a moment to acknowledge the many people who work behind the scenes to, to help church move from that room over there to this one in the summer. Uh, I know when, when we come on Sunday, sometimes it feels like magic, like it's just here and everything's set up for us, but it's not magic. Actually, a lot of people work very hard to make that happen, so thank you uh, to those of you involved in that process. Um, and what a gift it is to have uh, a climate-controlled environment for worship today. Um, also, some of us, uh, speaking of the room, cannot be here in person, so we do want to acknowledge Right now, we're not able to live stream because of this setup, but we are recording the service. So for those of you joining us after the fact, welcome. Uh, we're glad you could be with us in this way today. And we hope that even though you're worshiping at a different time, uh, the spirit is still present and able to be with you. Uh, I'm back from vacation, and there's a couple of announcements I want to highlight for us as we're getting started. I'm going away from the monitor. Is this my spot? <laughs> okay, that's better. There we go. All is right with the world. Uh, a couple of things happening in the life of our church that I want to highlight for you in case you are new or checking in with us after being away for a while. The first is that this coming Wednesday at 7 p.m., we have another youth-led worship night together. Uh, please come. Uh, our youth and young people will be leading worship, but it's not just for them, it's for all of us. And it would make us most happy if you could join us uh, for that. So that's at 7 p.m. on Wednesday night. Uh, here? Or over there? Here, right here. So you know how to find a place. So come and join us Wednesday night for that. That's at 7. Uh, the other thing is on um, Saturday, August 5th, we have a missionary who, who we've supported for a long time coming into town to visit with us. We're going to host a breakfast so we can catch up on life with each other and hear about his work. Steve Frieswick is his name. Uh, please come. We want to feed you, and we want to have a conversation about his work. If you could, there's a sign-up sheet just right over on the other side of the, uh, the uh, mailboxes, right over there. I mean, you can probably see it from where you're sitting. If you could put your name on that sign-up sheet for us to help us know how many people we can plan for. Uh, the other thing I want to mention about this afternoon is that after church today, uh, I, I want to host a town hall for us, a brief time at 11 5 downstairs in the um, uh, foundation to talk about Senate, which is our annual meeting of the Christian Reformed Church. I went back in June. If you'd like to come and learn what the word Senate means or what happens there, uh, we're going to do a brief uh, informal conversation, talk about that, do some questions. About that. All right, my friends, uh, those are our, our announcements. Um, when we gather, we do so to hear about what's happening in the life of our community and also to remember that we are a unique community, um, a, a people gathered in the presence of God. And so, in the presence of God, to rise and by the Spirit, let's worship together. Good morning. Our, our call to worship this morning comes from Psalm 100. Shout for joy to the Lord. All the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his chorus with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations.
Because we have a faith in Jesus, we can approach God with confidence. And trusting that God forgives sins and cleanses us from our wrongdoings, let's confess now together. Oh God Almighty, we confess our sin and then acknowledge that we are not worthy to lift our eyes up to heaven. Merciful God, forgive us our sin and lead us to eternal life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who taught us to pray. And this is the good news, friends. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Let everyone truly confess in their hearts and believe in Jesus. In his name is the forgiveness of your sins and the path to eternal life. It's the time in our service for our morning offerings. The deacons will be coming around with baskets. I would just like to thank you for supporting the Christian Reformed Church. Our work around the globe and here in Waynesville at Pleasant Street for faithfully following Jesus and giving to help grow his church. Let's pray. <laughs> Father in heaven, you're an abundant God. We don't deserve your blessings. But you support us and you love us. For that, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Joy.
Friends, in Jesus' abundant grace, God has forgiven us. God has freed us from our sin and has transformed our grief into joy. Now we can be at peace with God. Now let's, let's take a moment now to pass this peace with each other. The peace of Christ is with you. Here, but us in person, due to physical limitations and permanence. 
Lord, we pray that we continue to feel love the part of this community. Dear Pastor Matthew, as he brings your word, lead us, Lord, with grace and with peace that we can be refreshed in your spirit to love and serve you and those around us as you have showed us with the example of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Today's scripture reading comes from Philippians 1, 27 to 24. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be sure, but that you will be saved. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to be with him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw in my hand, and now that I still have. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in his spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit, and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, and contribute to the interests of others. This is the word of the Lord. So, good morning. Good to see you all again. Uh, on and off throughout the summer, we've been going through the, the letters of the Philippians. Um, taking breaks along the way in between, in particular, looking at the theme of joy. So Paul wrote this letter. He's in prison. He's in chains. Uh, he's writing to a congregation who he loves, or uh, a group of people that are also suffering. And joy is all over this letter. And uh, that's one of the reasons really is. But before we do that, friends, would you pray with me? Lord Jesus Christ, gathered here in this place, we ask that you would be with us, even as you have already. As we've sung your name, you've reminded us of who you are and the work that you're doing in our lives. Even so, we ask that now, as we hear your words from Paul to us, that it would be you speaking to us that it would be you and your voice transforming our lives, enlivening the sense of joy for us The year is 432 AD. The place is the western shores of Britain. And there's a man who was captured and sold into slavery standing on the shores, and he's preparing to board a boat back to the island and to the people who enslaved him. His name is Patrick. We call him St. Patrick. And he's going to Ireland with the express purpose of being a foreigner in a hostile land so as to teach people about Jesus Christ. He will be beaten, imprisoned, spurned, Eventually, he will die. The year is 745 AD, and there on the mudflats of the Bourne River in what we would call Friesland stands St. Boniface. And he has come back to Friesland with a team of priests and church leaders for the express purpose of proclaiming Jesus to the people who have tried to kill him. No jokes about Friesland. On the morning on which all of those converted are to assemble to be baptized at the river, a band of pirates surprises them by attacking without mercy. Boniface's attendants, they pick up swords, they're ready to defend him, to fight back, but before they can strike, Boniface commands them all to lay down their weapons. He gathers the priests around themselves, they give thanks to God while the pirates attack. It is said that their blows are so fierce that the book in his hand was cut through twice. 
year is 1718. And a Quaker and his wife arrived by boat and they set foot on the docks in Barbados. Benjamin and Sarah Lay believed themselves to have been sent by an audible call from the Holy Spirit to the slave colony there in Barbados. They have come to overturn something most of human history has taken for granted, the institution of slavery. But they stand out for another reason, too. They are both hunchbacks, and they're barely four feet tall. In a time when even Quaker Christianity was attempting to look respectable in Western society, Benjamin and Sarah Lay are on a wild and prophetic mission from God that puts them at odds with everyone, even the Quakers. The more they denounce slavery, the more ostracized they become. The date is March 7, 1965. An estimated 525 to 600 civil rights marchers are headed southeast out of Selma, Alabama on U.S. Highway 80. The marches led by John Lewis, Reverend Hosea Williams, Bob Vance, and Albert Turner. They are walking in protest to expose voting suppression and to demonstrate African-American desire to exercise the right to vote. The protest is going according to plan until they cross the Edmund Pettus Bridge, where they encounter a wall state troopers and Kelly Posse waiting for them on the other side. What follows is a bloody use of force, including nightsticks and tear gas, and the protesters in the country watched all of this in horror as the protesters covered each other and refused to fight back. The date is February 26, 2019, and a pastor in a black robe ascends the pulpit of Early Rain Covenant Church in Chengdu, China. He preaches a sermon about how the cross of Jesus Christ tears down all ethnic divisions and undermines all sense of ethnic superiority, makes a new humanity, and how all of this has political significance. He talks about how the gospel is the most important thing that Chinese society has. It is 1,000 times more important than who is running the state. He says this in a country that proclaims that the state is all. He goes on to preach about how Christianity has been around longer than the Communist Party and that it will be here long after its war. And that is the only way a society is going to find stability in the first place. In December of 2019, Wang Yi is arrested and he is sentenced to nine years in prison for illegal business operations. He's fined and all of his personal assets are seized. In response, he denies all charges but willingly offers Maybe find those vignettes throughout history on my little tour for you. Inspiring. Maybe find them unsettling, maybe a little bit of both. But you're probably wondering what in the world is not common. Well, in the words of Paul, we can say that they live the gospel of Jesus Christ no matter what happens. Each one of these people, you know, they spoke different languages, they lived in different cultures, they lived in different nation states, they lived in different times and on different continents. And yet Paul would say they all knew somehow that they were citizens together of God's kingdom. And they knew that to be a citizen means to suffer. And in this way, I can think of no other way for us, my friends, to get to the heart of what Paul is telling us in this passage in Philippians. Today, we have come upon some words that seem strange to us, that seem even off-putting. They are words about suffering. Paul says that whether or not things go well for you, whether or not a spiritual authority is present watching you or not, we are all called to conduct ourselves in a way that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that means suffering for the sake of others. This is what it means to be a citizen of God's kingdom. I know you don't see it in the translation that we looked at here together, but in verse 27, the first one that we read, when Paul says, conduct yourselves, that verb, that word he uses, it means live as citizens. Have you ever been to a foreign country? I'm not sure Canada counts for these purposes. 
When you enter a foreign country, all kinds of things are different. Language, customs, cars, the noises on the side of the road you drive on. But the longer that you spend in a foreign country, if you've been to one, the more you realize that the real differences are beneath the surface. They're more in how we see the world. Now, being a Christian makes you a foreigner and a stranger, no matter what country you live in. This is a this is a point throughout the entire Bible. It makes you a foreigner and a stranger in your own world in all kinds of ways. But if there is one way that it makes us different, very different from everyone, it's in our personal suffering. Paul is saying to the Philippians, and now also to us, that Christians are citizens of God's kingdom, no matter what country they live in and what language they speak. And citizens, according to Paul, know that part of their citizenship means suffering. But know, actually, what Paul really says is it is their gift. It's their gift. What? Yeah, he literally says, to you it has been gifted or grant to suffer on behalf of Christ. And between the examples that I began with this morning and Paul's words, I want us to notice this for a minute because this is very strange. This is not the message that you came to church looking for this morning. Look, people suffer, right? We know this, we experience it. It's hard enough for us as Christians to come to terms with suffering in all of its forms. We don't like it. We trust that somehow God is present in the midst of it. We hope that one day it's going to go away. But in the meantime, we think that the best we can do is, is accomplish some kind of a stasis between our faith and our experience of pain and, and just not question things too much. But this is not what Paul is doing here in verse 27 through 30, right? We're going to paraphrase. We say this, look, guys. The conflicts and the adversity that you are experiencing as a church may scare you, and they may discourage you. Don't be frightened. The pain and sorrow you are experiencing is not a sign that you are doing something wrong or that God is happening. It is exactly the opposite. It's a sign that God intends to save you. How is that possible? The suffering is the way of the Lord. Paul is saying, in effect, look, don't wish the suffering and difficulty you face in life away. It's been granted to you like some kind of a gift. No? Okay. Yes. So just let's be careful for a second. God does not make us suffer like some kind of divine drill sergeant. God does, though, use the suffering that is just part of living in a damaged world full of very sharp edges. And more importantly, God uses the suffering in our lives to do things that would not happen under any other circumstances. It is a necessary ingredient in our growth, albeit one that even would have us. Well, now that's startling, don't you think? Actually, it's more than startling. It's pretty uncomfortable. We spend so much time and energy and thought and money on minimizing and managing something. I mean, do I need to justify this for us? Are you with me? When's the last time you took medicine for How often do you think about whether or not you're comfortable? Well, right now, I'm pretty comfortable. But isn't that the point? What are the sources of discomfort in your life right now? Can you inventory them probably very quickly? How often do you think about them? Do you ever find yourself daydreaming about when they come to an end? What would you be willing to do or to give to be free of that pain? Be part of the world, no matter what language you speak or country you live in, is to try and minimize suffering. Paul says to be part of God's kingdom, to be a citizen, is to be someone who sees it as an opportunity for God to work. Christians embrace suffering. 
I like church history for some of it already today. There was a church father named Kusasim a long time ago. He once put it like this. He said, nothing is so out of character in a Christian and so foreign to his character as to seek ease and rest. Yet isn't that what most people are doing most of the time? To try and find some rest in a hard world? Living for the weekend? Isn't that what we are doing most of the time? Trying to find some rest in a hard world? Living for the weekend? Now we do this, of course, because we think, all of us, that pain steals joy. And therefore, we think that ease will give joy. But of course, if that were true, that would mean that people with easy lives are never miserable. You know, it's funny. Most of human history, people have had to work constantly for survival. Right? We've been in our house listening to the Laura's Ingalls, Laura the Wilder, Laura Ingalls Wilder books, right? The Little House on the Prairie that we saw on the show a long time ago. About Ma and Pa, right? Well, if you read those stories, this is my first time, right? Laura's family works all the time, right? And they're, they're about always this close to total and complete catastrophe, right? Um, we, me, my life, suburban kid, I have never once in my life worked anywhere near good. I have never, we have never had to scrabble for survival, anything like that. Though some of us have worked very, very hard, yes. We experience a quality of life that if Ma and Paul were here, they wouldn't, they wouldn't even have a sense. And yet, we're miserable. Ease of life, living for the weekend, free time, does not achieve the joy in life. And culturally, all the time ourselves that we So Paul's showing us that citizens know that pain cannot steal joy. And citizens also know that ease won't give so, well, then why are we so unhappy when we're suffering and empty when we're well? Paul says the problem is Paul seems to understand that the problem isn't actually whether life is easy or hard, it's selfishness. What steals our joy in life, my friends, isn't pain and suffering, it's thinking about ourselves, which is what pain does to us, right? Pain makes us think about ourselves and collapses the world. You ever notice this? The last time that you stubbed your pinky toe walking barefoot through the kitchen, did you think about anything else all day? Pain makes the only thing real to us the experience of the pain that we're having. And it makes being understood only as real as someone else understands. But as Chrysostom understood, and do the same thing to us. Right, so if you're going to ask a person with a lot of leisure in their life, you could try this if you wanted to, and maybe you do someone well, ask them, do you have enough leisure? What are they going to say? Yes, I have plenty of leisure in their life. No! They're going to tell you about all the things they still have to do and they have obligations about and never have enough time for this or that, and they really couldn't do it. It's more shuffling. So, but if pain and leisure both have a tendency to make us think about ourselves, then the problem isn't pain, and it isn't leisure. It's selfishness, which is what Paul says to our brothers and sisters in fellow Bible this morning. Paul said, if you have any encouragement, don't you love that? If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you have any comfort from his love, if there's any common good in the spirit, remember other Christians, if you ever experienced any tenderness and compassion, then fill up my joy. Live into this by having one mind. Commit together, all of you, that you will do nothing out of selfish ambition or vainness, rather in humility and value others above yourself. Look to their interests. 
say, don't have needs. He doesn't say, your needs are unimportant or inconsequential. What he says is, set yours just below the person sitting next to you. In this world, my friends, no matter what side of the road that you drive on, no matter what flag is on your passport, in this world, things run on self-interest. And in God's kingdom, citizens live exactly the opposite way. They run on the interests of others. You know this word that Paul used, vain conceit? If you read different translations, you see lots of different translations because it's, it's a uh, very broad word. There's lots of ways that you can look at it. It's interesting. Uh, if you were going to look at it literally, you could say something like vain conceit means glory empty. Empty of glory. I imagine a kind of black hole that absorbs all light, pulling all things to itself. Paul says that in this world we are glory empty creatures. We think of ourselves and the consequences that we begin to absorb all the light, all the energy and attention toward ourselves. And the thing is, like a black hole, it's never enough. This is why we get touchy with each other, right? It's why we have trouble taking criticism. Criticism. It's why we're keenly awareness of fairness at summer family gatherings. Because every slight in life reminds us that we are empty and impermanent and inevitable. And so both pain and ease in life can be drawn into this. We can be sick people who are deeply self-absorbed and we can be healthy, well people who are deeply self-absorbed. And neither, my friends, has any joy. Because my friends, according to Paul, the key to joy is not considering if all your needs are met. The key to joy is valuing the needs of others to let go. Which, my friends, we cannot actually do unless someone holds our needs, unless someone has promised to meet them in a uniquely satisfying way that is better than anything you've ever done. Which is who God is. And it is what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. For my friends, Christ values you. He valued, actually lived this way. He valued your needs above his own. Jesus took off all his glory and he came down here where we are, small as we are. He becomes small as a servant, then smaller, a slave, and then smaller still, a condemned criminal, and then he is blotted out and wiped away from history altogether when he dies on a cross. And he does all of this, my friends, because your needs are so very big and important to him. He became small so that we who are small could know that we are very big. And if God thinks this highly of us, if God was willing to go to these lengths for us, and there is no suffering, no humiliation, no unmet need that we cannot embrace for someone else to know that they are not. So I know a pastor once, this real story, he went to visit an elderly man in his congregation. The man was a widower and widely known to be a complainer. He sympathized, right? He'd been alone for a long time. Life had gone his way in many other aspects either, which I don't have to get into now. Suffice it to say, the man is miserable. The church community did love him, but no matter what the community did, it never seemed like he was good enough. So one time a pastor visits, anticipating how the conversation might go, brings the church directly. The litany of complaints begins, no one cares about me. I don't matter. I am alone in the world, you forgot me. 
pastor hands him a directory. It says, I wonder who else in our church might be I wonder if they use a call from someone who knows about this. Which, of course, only works because for a long time, pastor in the church had been demonstrated by entering this man's life that he didn't like. Friends, there's a lot of suffering in the world that goes by. Many names and inventory is too long for us to itemize here. Christians are citizens of the kingdom with a very different approach to all of this. The distinctiveness of Christianity in our suffering world is not, my friends, that Christianity gives us a better way to get out of it. Christianity does not teach us, my friends, how to pull the divine levers of blessing to get triple cherries on the heavenly slot machine. It really does not do that. The distinctiveness of what we offer to the world around us, the thing that we must learn to carry in our lives and in our witness. The role that given us, that God has given us as a church to play is this. To live as though it really is true that in Jesus Christ suffering leads to glory. That now in Christ God uses trouble by every name to turn us into something great. There is encouragement in being united with Christ. Because when we are suffering, we remember that we are walking with Him in the footsteps that He left for us. And there is comfort in His love. For when we are suffering, we remember that He did not avoid pain when He was the only person who had every right to. Instead, He chose it for our good and His glory. And there is sharing in the Spirit because Christians are citizens together with all other Christians and with this guy, Paul himself, who live like citizens of a good country that we have never been to, as foreign as it is, is here, and yet one day we will know it as if it is our own. And there is tenderness and compassion when we remember together how God has cared for us in our sorrow and our pain and even in our sin. And so, my friends, when this following God brings suffering into our lives, we remember that this suffering is also within God's control. That means that we are not at the mercy of our boss, our friend, or neighbor who insults us. We are in the hands of God. We are in the hands of the one who said, Into your hands, I commit my spirit. We are in the hands of the one who gave his hands to nails and obedience to his father. We are in the hands of the one who said, Your will be done. And if we are in his hands, and no one can cry us from him, well, it means you open the door for the right. Each other is 
similar way. Not perfectly. But, but Lord, from a place of knowing that actually we are held in your hands and that our deepest needs are really and truly and genuine and met you. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Friends, would you
together.
shutters to all the kids, but <laughs> excitement for all the parents, right? Um, we got a backpack school supply drive on behalf of the Deacons. Um, so we have a van out by the